genius, good at reading, friend. I've read so many books. It's not good. How so many have many. you read? I read one, two, three, four. Oh, I read, I read five. I read five books on George Bush, mostly George Bush. One of them's just on, um, it's the Jakarta Method, and it's just about basic anti-communism, but it's important to the story. Wow. Well, thank you for doing all this research. I'm excited to hear part two of this story. Uh, yeah, things get really exciting as um, where we from where we left off with Poppy mm-hmm. finally becoming part of officially part of the CIA. Yes. So no matter how much we think it goes back in time, he finally it finally winds up winds up happening and in 1970 he's um in 1976 he is sworn in as director of the cia which um i'm gonna read this is a paragraph from russ baker's book which is called titled family of secrets the bush dynasty america's invisible government and the hidden history of the last 50 years which we talk about quite a bit here So I'm going to read this from Russ Baker, and he says, Apparently, Poppy had secrets, and he kept them well. It seems that he had been involved in intelligence work for much of his adult life. He had been in and around hotspots of covert action, and in the fall of 1963, he had, for some unfathomable reason, been worried that someone would discover he had been in Dallas on the evening of November 21st and seemingly the morning of November 22nd. So that's the, mm-hmm. that's, that's JFK. Yeah, there. the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, the Kennedy assassination. So, so we <laughs> tied pretty, I think, fairly well at this point in time. Uh, Poppy's been tied back, uh, at least to being in the CIA at that period of time. Um, potentially having some involvement in um, taking down the patriarch of the Kennedy dynasty. So, you know, we're not sure. We'll never really totally be sure. But many researchers have decided that that's a real possibility. So I'll I'll leave it there. But Mm -hmm. um, Poppy Bush was definitely a club guy, you know, in his lifetime, taking oaths to... Um, the to the CIA like he had would be in line with all of the other oaths that he had taken. And he gave that strange speech when he got taken into the CIA to, you know, I will keep the, the secrets of all the patriots. I mean, you know, he, he, he made a lifelong promise to keep the, the CIA's secret. Wait, so, what is this promise? When he when he went in to take the oath of office for, or to take the oath with the CIA, um, he had he had just made this little speech about how he promised to keep the the secrets of all the great you know men in the CIA. And oh the great right, God, and that's like, so yeah. weird. Right. Like it's, I thought we were supposed to be like a government, like for the people, by the people, but it's like. Everybody is just keeping everything a secret from us. Yeah, I mean, he vowed passionately when he was when Poppy Poppy vowed passionately to uh, keep keep the secret. Cool. And he was super into that. Yeah, cool. Super cool. So that's that's you know, and that's and like you know, I mean, 
that's the way definitely he thinks. I mean, I think Prescott was the same way. I think many of these of these powerful people who are coming out of these clubs, it's never really about the country or about the people. They're taking these oaths to these to these clubs, uh, you know, or maybe they take at some points in time, they take an oath of office, which would put them more in alignment with, um, with taking an oath towards the people. But I think their real loyalties are to these clubs like the CIA and, you know, he wow, comes from yeah. a background, skull, right? So skull and bones was in his background. He was a Navy guy he was an ambassador for the UN, which has some really creepy tentacles that go and move in with Prescott Bush. Um, he was a member of the House of Representatives. He was a member of Council of Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission. Both of those are think tanks for global business, for the industrialists, the mercantilists, the capitalists. Mm-hmm. These guys, right? The oil men and the bankers, like who he is, his family. So um, Council of Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission both are these think tanks of, of these wealthy people getting together and deciding um, how to how they're going to move forward with moving their wealth around and so on and so forth. So anyway, club guy is basically is basically what I'm getting at. Club guy taking this right club guy, the original club guy. Um, it's and like so really nice. interesting to think about that as a concept, like people's loyalty actually just being to these secret societies versus and i mean they're not really a secret like skull and bones is not a secret and like the bohemian club is like not a secret but these i guess the better word would be like these really exclusive societies and like not actually to like the quote-unquote country you're supposed to be serving i mean i don't think Mm -hmm. countries should exist anyways but like in this hypothetical where like (laughs) these guys are supposed to be like putting America first or like whatever stupid shit they say to like get people to listen to them. It's just like, yeah, I guess so. But really it's like your secret club with your bros where you like, don't even do anything cool. Like when I watched (laughs) video footage of Bohemian Grove is like, this party sucks. Like this isn't even cool. (laughs) You guys are fucking losers. Anyways, (laughs) just thinking about that just really kind of made me think about, that just made me think, Michelle. You're just making me think. I don't know. <laughs> That's great. Bohemian Grove does look like a terrible party. I would not want to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I that's I do. I think that these I think the parties and the and the club loyalties are the biggest aspect of 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 the politics that we see happening. You know, crony politics, I guess mm-hmm. they call it. So Poppy's in the CIA now, and um, the church, like Frank Church, is the senator who was bringing out the COINTELPRO stuff, which was from which was from the FBI. That was FBI's um, kind of uh, scandal. But while he's doing that during the seventies, while Frank, Senator Frank Church is running the Church Committee and doing this, he's pulling up all kinds of gunk and goo about these politicians and these industrialists and these, you know, these businessmen and so on and so forth. 
these uh, philanthropists and these media, mm-hmm. ju- you know, he's mm-hmm. he's finding out he's pulling up all of this stuff. So at the time that Bush is being appointed to the CIA and he's making his oath and all that, Frank Church, among others, our, our Senator Frank Church, among others, are opposed because of several things, because he has a series of of potential connections to some highly questionable activities, right? And also because it's known at this time in the late 70s, everybody knows that George W. Bush or George H.W. Bush, Poppy Bush, wants to get in the White House. He wants to make a run for president. He had already made one run for president in 68. It's It's known that he has this lifelong goal of getting mm. into the White House. And at this particular time in culture and in history in America, in the United States, the idea that someone would be a member of the CIA and then enter into the White House, I don't know how that we would think that that was so odd or strange in this in this in in our times today. I don't know that that we would have a, a lot of quarrel about that but at the time people did mm-hmm. at the time that was that in itself was scandalous um so i i want to i want to put that out there in terms of the world you know the story world that we're in so when you know you have frank church and some of these other leaders that are absolutely outraged that this person that someone could have aspirations for both the CIA and the White House mm-hmm. was was timely it was relevant people talked about this at the time um so but nonetheless um he's he's appointed and he's sworn in and it's interesting too because he's sworn in he's being sworn in as kind of this red herring like this is really like interesting he, so it's like people yeah. people were sus of him becoming head of the CIA because he had aspirations for precedent that's what you're just saying right yes yeah that's that's so i mean that makes sense to me like they're supposed to be like separate branches of government and like they're actually supposed to be separate so like how can they be separate if somebody is like heading both of those you know departments so to speak right absolutely and i and the secrecy of the CIA, I think, is and these oaths that are being made, I think, are also part of it. There's a lot to be questioned. Like, what did you do in the CIA? Well, I can't tell you that, but you want to be the president of the United States? There, it's just it's problematic in so many in so many ways, um, and especially this loyalty. I think. Do you ever stop being loyal to the CIA? No, definitely not. I mean, he made that promise. Right. And I think they do. And so, you know, high-level people during that time period um, actually did uh, question that. Yeah, I guess my question about it would be, because they are, I just looked it up, and they are in the same branch of government. They're under the executive branch. But, like, as a president, if his loyalty is still to this agency that he's supposed to be overseeing, is he really going to have, like, he's not going to be asking those questions of accountability, basically, because he, like, 
would want the CIA to kind of be able to do whatever they wanted because he worked there and that's like who he's loyal to. So instead of yes. like a president who's who's going to be like, I mean, whatever, they all fucking <laughs> stick up for each other and cover up for each other anyways. But it's like, that makes sense to me that like somebody who's the president just wouldn't, who, who had worked for the CIA just wouldn't have the initiative to like hold them accountable in the same way. Cause they like would want them to be able to get away with stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think absolutely. I think that's what George Bush winds up doing the entire time <laughs> on the way out. Yeah. I, and, and just, you know, having a president who's been involved in, in covert operations that we know the CIA does it's just it's a it's a complex overlap that you know at the time was called was called out and and you know and that happens to be that crosses paths with um the fact that you know he's being appointed as something of a red herring Mm -hmm. i mean both both historically and also improvisationally in the moment because he's actually being this this appointment is being made as somewhat reactionary like it's starting to come out that he might have been a member of the CIA at the point when when the Kennedy assassination happened right and even right and even before that and so they don't uh, hit the poppy and his camp and the CIA, you know, which he runs deep with. They don't really want that coming out. And so they do one of, I, you know, like we've talked about in the last episode, these, the ways they cover things oftentimes are really messy and counterintuitive. And it winds up working for them in, in, in a longer in in the long game, some of that winds up really working. So it seems like he gets he gets appointed from this reactionary position of like, well, I don't know about them, but he sure is now. Hey, you know, break out the band. Let's listen to the speech, you know, or whatever. Like, it's this totally weird, like, distraction that mm-hmm. the Bush families, you know, and their and their CIA cronies, right, are really um, are really are really good at doing. So so he's appointed. That's happening now. A couple of months into this, um, a young person named Jim Bath, I mean, he's probably 30, um, maybe a little older, Jim Bath, he's an American, he's a newly minted aircraft broker, so he just started this business as an aircraft broker, and he gets a call from Salem Bin Laden. Now, this is about just a couple of months after Poppy is... Uh, okay this seems really important because yes (laughs) we know what happened so a couple months after he's assigned to the cia right salem bin laden calls somebody named jim bath and salem bin laden is of course from the famous bin laden family he's osama bin laden's brother but that having been said um Daddy, Osama bin Laden is one of 54 children mm-hmm. for, of his father. 54. So he has a lot of brothers. So although Salem bin Laden is Osama bin Laden's family, when you have 54 siblings, children of your father, you don't maybe necessarily know them all. 
I just Maybe, want to and not necessarily well, you know. Like I or, definitely or know fifty four well. people, but I wouldn't say I know fifty four people well. Right. Um, exactly. So I don't know. What's the relationship there? Who knows? You know, these are all half brothers and, and sisters. Um and there's other there's many there's many bin Ladens. The other brothers did this also. Like the bin like the bin Ladens are uh, uh, are a huge family of people that name many many people have that name so Mm -hmm. i do want i do want to set that that stage of how many been and they're known to have some differing uh political as you would with 54 people you're going to have that you didn't choose you're probably going to have um differing political standpoints Mm -hmm. which the bin laden family all did as well nonetheless it is uh salem bin laden is osama bin laden's brother and he calls uh, Jim Bath, this person named Jim Bath. So who brokers a deal. He's a new aircraft broker. And he brokers a deal for an F-27. Now, in both of these, in so bin, Salem Bin Laden wants to buy this F-27. And so in both books that I read on this, in Russ Baker's book and in... Uh, Dave McGowan's book also. Both of them, in an article I read, also in uh, Unger's book, I guess. Um, Everywhere I read it, the guys go on about the F-27 was this really outmoded plane. Like, nobody would really, nobody would really want this plane. So all the writers that, all the bros that I read when (laughs) to Uh to, to do this talk are like, that's a, it's this crappy plane. They all felt like it was important to mention that. So I will mention that as well. This F-27 was a crappy plane. Nobody would want this plane. But, uh, but Salem Bin Laden wanted it. And so Jim Bath is a pilot himself. He, he had been. Uh, well, well, he, 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 he winds up having, having more tentacles here than just being an aircraft broker, of course. So, but he flies the, himself, personally, flies the uh, F-27 to Saudi Arabia to uh, Salem Bin Laden. And he stays there for a few weeks. As he returns to the United States, by the time he returns to the United States, he has been hired in a notarized contract, hired by Salem bin Laden uh, as a U.S. business representative. He's also been signed on by somebody we haven't heard quite. It's not a name we know as much. But it's an important name, which is Khalid Mahfouz. All right, and so the Mahfouz family is also very, very powerful in Saudi Arabia. And Khalid Mahfouz is at this time. Khalid Mahfouz is 25 years old. Salem bin Laden's about 30, and so Khalid Mahfouz is an heir to the National Commercial Bank of Saudi Arabia. So he's a, a wealthy. Politically, you know, Saudi Arabia, the way things run there, the one family runs everything and they run it based on business and religion. And so there's no, I mean, the kings, like the leaders, particularly the kings, but the leaders in Saudi Arabia, they, you know, they can do the thing, they can make these laws that are like, they're called fatwas. And like, you, like, 
they can make their preferences essentially like against your religion. Like, you know, mm-hmm. right? Like in, on a whim, right? They're like, I'm having a bad day. And so now you're like, one of them at one point had said nobody could talk about the earth being spherical anymore, huh. you know, or whatever, because he didn't believe in it. So like he could make this thing that would make it against your religion to talk about the earth this, or the globe. This and 25-year-old could do that? Um, not, not, no, not necessarily this 25 year old. I'm just giving you an idea of what kind of it's like in Saudi Arabia. And so he's and so this, but this 25 year old was just basically, he's just this rich kid, this kid who's going to, you know, inherit this like international bank and he does whatever he wants and he can buy airplanes and he can buy, he can do anything he wants anytime he wants to do it for the rest of his life. So, um, anyway, what a life, what a life. And so, um, Jim Baff signs on to also be Khalid Mahfouz's U S business representative. So Jim Baff returns to the United States and he is at this point now, he is the United States representative business representative for Salem bin Laden and Khalid Mahfouz. So, like, so a I business wanna... representative would just be somebody who's, like, literally an American representing your business interests and, like, trying to make deals and stuff? Yes. On the, for the most part. Okay. We'll get Jim Bath. Jim Bath is a bit of a specialist in a few things mm, here, but yes. That does not <laughs> surprise me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yes, ostensibly, that's, that's what he's doing. He's going to represent you... In a business in the United States, right? Probably has some power to just sign off on things for you if necessary, right? Right. He's your representative. Okay. All right. So I'm going to read a a little bit from Russ Baker now on on this subject. So he says, Mm -hmm. Certainly the Bin Ladens and the Bin Mafuses were stars in the Saudi firmament. Thus the question, how did it happen that Jim Bath close friend and National Guard minder to George W. Bush, an acquaintance of Poppy Bush, suddenly become a business partner of these two powerful Saudi families just weeks after Poppy took over the CIA. (laughs) Is it likely that this was mere coincidence? Bath clearly preferred that explanation when the author Craig Unger obtained a rare interview with Bath several years ago and asked him how he came to be in business with these powerful Saudis. Bath offered the story of the unexpected phone call, although he claimed not to recall what year it had taken place. Again, and you know, and and Bush did some work, Poppy Bush did some work for the Bank of Saudi Arabia also as an employee, but if you ask him what he did, he can't remember. Uh, When was that? Do you know when that was? Uh, I might have that later in my notes. I, I kind of took I'm it out just of the curious. Story I'm just for curious. Today. Yeah. yeah, no worries. <laughs> I, I do have it somewhere. Um, so all of these people kind of have this um, this bad this bad memory or whatever. So all right, this is also from Russ Baker. So if people had looked more deeply into Bath's activities, they would have discovered what appeared to be a covert foreign a covert private foreign policy benefiting the wealthy and implemented by Poppy Bush and his associates with Jim Bath acting as a key intermediary to the Saudi royal house. Mm. So what it kind of comes down to with Jim Baker is, I'm sorry, Jim Bath. I have (laughs) Russ Baker and Jim Bath. I'm looking at both of those names. I mean, they're all Um, just like very, yeah, I get why you would confuse them. (laughs) 
<laughs> Very American. Um, so, uh, so the thing with Jim Bath is that essentially he is at the time that he becomes this aircraft broker and he does this bit with Salem bin Laden. He's actually been contracted by the Bush family for years at this point in time. Like he will be talking about him again when we talk about W because Jim Bath is a pilot. He's a really good pilot and he winds up being kind of a minder for W when he's at the champagne unit, um, trying to do his med- uh, his military, uh, duty. Mm-hmm. So, and Jim Bath has done other things for the Bush family. And this is kind of where you take somebody like Jim Bath. What is it that they do exactly? And they, well, they contract for these rich families in these ways of whatever's needed. Um, for a while they needed him to be an aircraft broker they pro- Jim Bath started several businesses uh, that would be fronts for the Bushes and probably did something very similar for the Bin Ladens and the Mafuses. Okay, interesting. so... Interesting, right? I mean, people like Jim Bath exist and they work for a family in this, in this way of contracting for them various kinds of fronts and deeds and businesses and needs to do this, that, and the other. I feel like you could do any number of jobs when your primary job is a contract for one of these, like, espionage cartel dynasty families like the Bush. Like the Bushes. And Jim Bath is pretty clearly one of, of these folks. So there's a... There's a um, term that comes up that I think is really a funny term, and it's called uh, sheep dipping. And so I'm going to read what this what this is because I think there's a good chance, or Baker, Russ Baker at least thinks that there's a good chance that Jim Bath is what is somebody is a, is sheep dipped. Okay, um, because of Bath's skills and background, he would have been a prime candidate for what is called sheep dipping. In this process, the Air Force typically loans a pilot to the CIA, and the pilot ostensibly becomes a civilian, but all his military records are transferred over to a clandestine department within the Air Force. The pilot gets routine promotions and retirement credit points, just as if he were on active duty, except that this part of his record is missing from files released under the Freedom of Information Act. Mm. If there are missing periods within a span of military service when no active duty is documented, that is a sign that the flyer was sheep-dipped. So Wow. That's, yeah, so Baker could very, um, I'm sorry, Bath could very easily um, be one of these, one of these sheep-dipped uh, people. And I want to I want to share this too. There's also there's a man named Charles W. White. They call him Bill, and he was a former real estate business partner with Jim Bath. And so he has some things to say uh, about Jim Bath that I'm going to go ahead and share here. And I had kind of the Russ Baker, the writer of this book, winds up kind of answering my question when I'm like. Who is this guy? This guy's supposed to be an acts like business partner. All of this is um, just really pretty hearsay. See, 
Um, but Russ Baker says at some point, you know, he's like, well, you know, kind of all everyone's always, always used his testimony. Like he always comes up when people talk about Jim Baff. So, um, so he's huh. he, so Baker went ahead and used him, and so I'm going to go ahead and use him too because it kind of tells the story um, that everyone is getting at when they're looking at the at the at the facts surrounding Jim Bath. So this is what, uh, this is what Charles, uh, Bill White, uh, has to say. And this is a former real estate business partner of Jim Bath. And so he says, Bath was very forthright with me when we went into business together in 1978. He said, Bill, I come from a poor background. I have no money of my own. And this relationship with the Bushes and the Saudis is of paramount importance to me. Because I derive all of my capital and all of my business contacts from that relationship. White says Bath told him that he was personally recruited by George H.W. Bush when the Senator Bush was CIA director in 1976. In all likelihood, though, he was actually recruited much earlier. He explained that the Saudis had basically entered into a quid pro quo relationship with Bush and that Bush, when the CIA director worked with the head of Saudi intelligence and the CIA trained the palace guard to protect the Saudi Royal family, which was concerned about a fundamentalist revolution. So, so white is also saying that, that, you know, the CIA is funding both sides of things in Saudi Arabia. They're side, they're funding, um, those fighting against the the royal family and their and their funding the royal palace guards. Yeah, also, so they're which, just funding like chaos. Yeah, discord, fear. They're yeah. funding fear. Right. We'll see this pattern with them again uh, later. Also, so it says, and this is still white talking. He says, my understanding of it is that Bath represented the Bush interests. And bin Laden, bin Mahfuz interchangeably represented the Saudi royal family interests, said White. People who have to, people have tried to vilify the bin Laden family or the bin Mahfuz family fail to realize that the Saudis have a very patriarchal society and that, according to Bath, neither of those families sneeze without the Saudi royal's blessing. I mean, everything they do is at the behest of the Saudi royal family. As a matter of fact, Bin Mahfouz Bank, NBC, is the only bank that is not nationalized in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) All the rest of the banks were nationalized in 1974, except National Commercial Bank, which is privately owned by Bin Mahfouz. That's where the Saudi royals keep all their personal money. So Khalid Mahfouz is essentially his family is the one who does the private banking for the Saudi royals. Dang. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like, these people, like, you're talking about lots of money. Because it's all about money at the end of the day because it's, like, international capitalism, so. Absolutely. I mean, international, just espionage, like, mafia shit you know yeah this is all like fucking mafia shit these people have their own fucking bank come on yeah true right so that's who so what's being said here what white's essentially saying is that bath is representing the bush dynasty and salem bin laden and um uh khalid mafus are representing the royal families and so are the royal family of Saudi Arabia. 
So these these so they're um, basically working out. Those are the those are the operatives getting together to work out business deals between the Bush dynasty and the Saudi royal family. So anyway, that's what's that's what's going on there, and that's that's where we find ourselves right before Poppy Bush winds up becoming vice president. Mm-hmm. So so what happens then is um, Poppy Bush stays in this. He's in the CIA actually for a very short period of time. His official CIA stance is um, just 355 days. Huh. Um, Jimmy Carter uh, wins the White House uh, as a, in the and wins the presidency, whereas they had kind of planned on Ford. I think everybody it was a narrow win, but Carter won it. And at that point, he replaced uh, Poppy actually with someone. He replaced Poppy immediately and was had an interim CIA director, and then um, eventually replaced him with um, Stan Stansfield Turner permanently. Um, so anyway, so it was over as quickly as it began, but that doesn't stop Poppy from being very busy, right? So, but when he's like let go from the CIA, it is the first time in many, many years that he hasn't actually held a government position. But at this point in time, he does what he had a, a kind said he wasn't going to do, which he starts preparing his uh, bid for the presidency. Mm. So this is right. So this is this is the lead up to the lead up to that, which then brings us into kind of one of our you know this is how this is how we start kicking off these these Bush years. Carter has a very has a highly embattled presidency and one of the things that happens um during during that presidency is the iran hostage crisis Mm -hmm. so that happens that happens november 4th 1979 and it lasts 444 days so longer than poppy was officially in the cia right (laughs) um so it lasts 444 days it's so long it's november 4th 1979 to january 20th um 1981 my god it's over a year and so what is what was what had happened was the united states which is jimmy carter was providing sanctuary uh, to the Shah of Iran, and he had, who had been uh, overthrown mm-hmm. by the Iranian people the year before. And so the U.S. was giving him sanctuary, and they were giving him medical care, and um, Iran, Iran wanted, that, wanted him back. They wanted him to stand trial for what he had done, and the U.S. was refusing and to turn him back over. And so it was a group of Iranian Iranian uh, citizens, military citizens, students. In, and they were they had taken in how many? 52 American diplomats and citizens in Tehran and had captured them and held them hostage for 444 days. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so and and Carter could not broker this. He couldn't negotiate those hostages back during this during this period of time. So that was a that was a real stain on 
his presidency. And um, one of the things that's happening, too, is, you know, he's not giving back the Shah, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure what was going on there, why he's not doing that. But there's all these other things that are working on on the back burner, part of which, of course, is the CIA Mm -hmm. brokering these deals. And so they what they realized, let me read this part to um, from Baker about what. Now, this is like Poppy's people, and this is, um, and, you know, and of course the CIA, because they go together, right? So this is Poppy worrying that um, these hostages are going to wind up being released before he can make this run for the White House, right? So he doesn't want, he doesn't want that to happen. <sighs> so these guys, people are so sick. So, all right, so this is from Baker's book, and he says, clearly, though... CIA operatives worked hard to influence election outcomes, abroad at least. They were not so effective this time around. Ronald Reagan surged past Poppy and claimed the GOP nomination. Soon, however, Reagan was persuaded, thanks in part to some negotiations by James Baker that were supposedly conducted without Poppy's consent, to make Poppy his running mate. And Poppy brought with him the tricks and mindset of spycraft. The greatest fear that Bush and his fellow Republicans had was that the Carter White House would resolve the Iranian hostage crisis in the final weeks of the 1980 campaign and throw the election back to the Democratic incumbent. Within the Reagan-Bush campaign, this threat was termed the October Surprise. Like, so before everybody voted in November 4th they were they called it they were afraid of the October surprise when Jimmy Carter might at the at the 11th hour like pull out a way to like god forbid god forbid god forbid right? he helps these people right so um Gary Sick Carter's national security council expert on the Middle East contends in his book October surprise that William Casey, the manager for the Reagan-Bush campaign, worked out a clandestine deal with the Iranians during the summer and fall of 1980. This involved a quid pro quo if the 52 American hostages were held until after the election, the Republicans vowed to deliver desperately needed arms (laughs) and spare parts to Iran. The 1980 election involved, in six six words, a political coup that handed the Reagan-Bush ticket to the White House. Wow. (laughs) That's insane. Yeah, right? That's insane. So that's going on. If they're doing that over over the summer, then let's just say it's July. Um, Then they're fucking with, like, six months of you being a hostage. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, just, like, sick shit. They're like, whatever you do, man, don't let those people go to Warren office, Well, right? obviously the government does not care about people. <laughs> no, obviously not. Obviously not. So that's how they handled their fear of the October surprise. Um, was they brokered an arms deal <gasps> with, um, with, the, with these folks in, in Iran. So, um, and which were, if you notice the dates, I mean, it's so gross. I mean, it's so gross. It was January 20th, 1981. It was hours after Reagan was sworn in. So he'd already been voted in. He'd already, like, that was going to happen. They did not hand those people over 
until he was like actually sworn in to the, wow. to the White House. Like just hours afterwards, just making this big like, making everybody making this big show, right? Well, so, I guess the Iranians were just so happy Reagan was president that they just, of their own volition, decided we're not going to keep these hostages anymore. Right. It's just crazy that right. that's what they want people to think and that people just do think that. Like, who the fuck <laughs> right. loves Reagan that much? <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not the Iranians. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was, um, so that's, that's, you know, that's happening the day Reagan <laughs> takes office. The day. The, that's insane. The day. You know what I mean? Like, like, whatever, cue the rock and roll music. Like, here we go. Like, the yeah. Reagan Bush White House is like, it's insane. It's a crazy, crazy place. And that's just the roll up. You know, yeah. So like, so that happens um, January twentieth, and then uh, you know, so, so yeah. So that's basically what we're gonna kind of do here is look at the look at the Reagan White House as a um, through the lens that it's essentially being operated by a high level um, CIA operative, which is Poppy Bush. And so what happens now, nine months, I'm telling you, it's a wild, it's a wild, wild place. Oh, wait, did I want to read a couple? Um, yeah, you know what? Here's something that kind of backs up. I'll, I'm going to back up a little bit. So we're going to back, back up, up to like, back it up. Um, back it up. So I'm going to back up to saying, um, you know, this is just the this is just the kickoff to what's to what's about to happen in the Reagan in the Reagan Bush administration. And I want to read a couple of quotes from uh, the Miami Herald, which this came out initially. This came out in November sixteenth, nineteen eighty six, and it's looking back on this on on some of the things that's already been happening in the Reagan White House. At this point in time. So one of the things it says is the Reagan administration changed the way covert action programs are carried out. Not only is the CIA, the agency traditionally charged with undercover foreign policy involved, but the White House has directed many of the actions itself through the National Security Council. That's going to be important in a minute. That appears to have been the case, especially when officials wanted to skirt bureaucratic and congressional constraints, sources said. Okay. Um, so Reagan is just, he's just, his whole White House really muddles the way um, that those lines between intelligence and, and the executive branch, which is why we kind of, you know, I feel like we have a different idea about secrecy in the White House these days than than of the American public did 40 and 50 and 60 years ago. Um, so this is another uh, bit also from that same Miami Herald article. It says, Reagan's programs sometimes surpass in magnitude those undertaken in the CIA's golden age of covert operations, which ended by disclosures and congressional investigations of such CIA operations as assassination plots against Cuban President Fidel Castro and the destabilization of the government of Salvador, of Salvador Allende in Chile. 
So that's even referencing um, JFK. So what this article is saying, what this journalist is saying, is that Reagan's White House, the way they handle their relationship with the CIA, with covert and clandestine um, programs, is 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 unique, is something new. Is It rivals... The Reagan White House in its own secrecy rivals secret secrecy organizations on their own is basically what the what that what the journalist at the Miami Herald is saying. So I think those quotes are are relevant to what we're kind of going into this wild and crazy Reagan Bush White House times. Okay, yeah, right? well, so wow. I mean, if there's anybody who's going to be good at. Uh keeping secrets it's gonna be somebody who was in the fucking cia so damn right here he goes you know um your so, time to so shine that, pony boy <laughs> yeah no doubt and you know he really like utilizes the the white house effectively in that way so we're rolling up into this um this reagan bush administration and times are just they're really pretty they're pretty wild. They're as wild as they were at the end of the 60s, it looks like. I mean, on paper, it all looks pretty wild. John Lennon had just been killed. Um, the cocaine industry, of course, is booming. Um, the cities are being built on on cocaine money and cocaine trade. Um, there's a lot of wealth in the United States at that time. Um, not a lot of regulation, not like we have today. Uh, people are definitely lots of free sex, lots of going out, you know, oh, being at the clubs, awesome. swinging. Yeah. I mean, culturally, it's kind of an indulgent time, which is also, I think, allowing for a lot of the political repression because socially it's it's a it's it's kind of an it's an indulgent time. But politically, it's a very repressive right. um, time period. Um, in the United States, what the United States is doing to its um, to its annex countries, uh, to it's just they're really. I mean, all over the world, you're seeing you're seeing a great deal of repression and closing and closing down. But the American government, the U.S. government, and and the and the CIA has their hands in a lot of this of this nonsense. Mm-hmm. So. That's happening all over the world. And so, but nine weeks into the Bregan presidency, so we have already got this hostage situation, and nine weeks into it, Ronald Reagan is shot oh, by, right. right, he's shot by John Hinckley Jr., who up until right, until I was reading these books, until right now, like I never knew this, but the Bush family knew the Hinckley family. Of course. Uh, right? I mean, in this kind of, like, really interesting way. Like, they're, they all, like, the kids all grew up in Midland, Texas, which isn't that big of a place. And they, with these, with these wealthy oil families, I mean, they knew each other. Yeah, right? of course. Right? So, I'm going to, let me read you um, something that from Dave McGowan's book. So, Dave McGowan wrote a book called, uh, titled... Understanding the F word, American fascism and the politics of illusion. It's a pretty good book and there's some pretty good stuff in it about about the Reagans. Uh so this is this is one of those bits. Let me 
Okay. All right. So this is from Dave McGowan's book, uh, Understanding the F Word. And here's what he has to say. Because at the time of the shooting, the CIA uh, director is saying, you know, we've never heard of John Hinckley. Like, we don't know anything about him. You know, that's it. End of, end of story. So, um, McGowan writes, there seems to have been some very interesting connections to Hinckley that Casey overlooked, however. Apparently, the CIA, America's premier information-gathering network, doesn't have access to the Associated Press Wire Service, because if they <laughs> did, Casey would certainly have known the day after the shooting that, and then this is quoted from the Associated Press, the family of the man charged with trying to assassinate President Reagan is acquainted with the family of Vice President George Bush and had made large contributions to his political campaign. Scott Hinckley, brother of John W. Hinckley, who allegedly shot at Reagan, was to have dinner tonight in Denver at the home of Neil Bush. Oh, God. One of, one of the Vice Bush. President's sons. Right. We never hear about Neil Bush, right? One of the vice president's sons. The host in the Houston Post said it was unable to reach Scott Hinckley, vice president of his father's Denver-based firm. Okay, so he's a oil firm. That's what that's what Neil does. Neil runs Neil runs the businesses, I guess. Um, so Vanderbilt Energy Corporation for comment. Neil Bush lives in Denver, where he works for Standard Oil of Indiana. In 1978, Neil Bush served as a campaign manager for his brother George W., the vice president's eldest son, who made an unsuccessful bid for Congress. Um, okay, so that is so the night that John Hinckley shot uh, Jim Brady, and also. Um, who was one of who was um, Reagan's Secret Service uh, guy, and also Ronald Reagan was also mm -hmm. struck with a bullet. So the night that that happened, Hinckley's brother was supposed to go to the home of George Bush's son and have dinner. Yeah, like it's just odd. I'm not. I don't have anything. I don't have any specific connections to make necessarily. Um, that somehow the Bushes necessarily, like, plans on this hit on Reagan. But it's just it weird. Is, it's just weird. And it leaves anybody who kind of comes in contact with it with a question mark. Like, what's going on there? Like, yeah. what happens um, to, with this kid, with John Hinckley? So, but the other thing that's interesting about John Hinckley to me was he also, like, he also stalked Carter. And at some point was caught do, doing this and was kind of given, like, a slap on the hand. So there's some weird. very interesting... Weird, right? So, I mean, I have a feeling that when you and I do our new and improved extended uh, mix version of MK Ultra uh -huh. that Hinckley's going to reappear oh, for me. Oh, no way. You think so? <laughs> that would be crazy, I, but I believe it. Right? Because there's just something... Hinckley's just such an odd... I don't know. He's odd, and he has a lot of the ear markings. I do want to just to show us 
give us a little bit of more feeling about the era that we're heading into now. And just because I find it fascinating, I want to read Hinckley's letter to Jodie Foster. Oh, because um, John Hinckley. Uh, oh, right. The jo- oh, right, 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 right. Right, because John Hinckley said that he shot the president to get uh, Jodie Foster's attention, which is also part of what throws it back in the like, is this an MK Ultra kind of you know? Because they create those, they create those those focal points out of like famous people or famous books or famous songs, you know. Right. So anyway, right. But this is, like, this letter to me, though, it's just a few paragraphs long, and it's fascinating. And to me, it's so, it really sums up the times in, a, in an odd way to me, just the, the, what the feelings that this person is going through here. So he says, Dear Jody, there is definitely a possibility that I will be killed in my attempt to get Reagan. It is for this very reason that I am writing you this letter now. As you well know by now, I love you very much. Over the past seven months, I have left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we talked on the phone a couple of times, I never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself. Besides my shyness, I honestly did not wish to bother you with my constant presence. I know the many messages left at your door and in your mailbox were a nuisance, but I felt that it was the most painless way for me to express my love for you. I feel very good about the fact that you at least know my name and how I feel about you, and by hanging around your dormitory, I've come to realize that I'm the topic of more than a little conversation, however full of ridicule it may be. At least you know that I'll always love you, Jody. I would abandon the idea of getting Reagan in a second if I could only win your heart and live out the rest of my life with you, whether it be in total obscurity or whatever. I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something now to make you understand, in no uncertain terms, that I'm doing all of this for your sake by sacrificing my freedom and possibility my my life. I hope to change your mind about me. This letter is being written only an hour before I leave for the hotel, for the Hilton Hotel, Jody. I'm asking you to please look into your heart and at least give me a chance with this historical deed to gain your love and respect. I love you forever. John W. Hinckley. That's his letter. I know, right? Like, that's some wild shit. There's some wild shit going on in this on this kid's mind. So, like, you know, maybe he's in, he's just, you know, maybe he's just an unhinged kid from an otherwise, you know, wealthy um, pillar of society, you know, family. Um, but, I mean, it's definitely not partisan. He wants to get Reagan, but apparently he wanted to get Carter, too. So, I don't know, but we go in, we're nine, you know, but we're only a few weeks into the Reagan presidency. And these are the wild times that yeah. we're like, <laughs> that we're dealing with already. So, um, so, so we pedal along then through, through his presidency and we get to the ever, always ever famous, um, Iran Contras. Right. Yes. So that's, yeah, that's this huge deal that happens during the second term of Reagan's presidency. 
But it, it it really starts much 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 sooner than that. I mean, the relationship really goes back quite a bit farther than that. But at any rate, just at, like nutshell, the Iran Contras here is all is what I'm going to do and put it in, into a larger picture. It certainly is. I mean, you know, there's many many books written on the subject. There's there's a great deal to be uncovered in the entire in the entire scandal. It's it's actually really fascinating. Uh, Oliver North on the stand can be some really um fascinating uh bits of Americana kind of to just listen to. Just listen to the way that that they talk about what they were doing at at the time. Um but um uh, but so but the but the Iran Contras were when senior administration. So that's that's the White House and you know the CIA. There they are. Um, make a secret sale of arms to the Khomeini government of Iran. And then the proceeds from that gun deal will go to fund the Contras in Nicaragua. So the United States had been funding the Contras in Nicaragua, uh, which were, the Contras were, a CIA-funded and founded, the CIA founded the Contras, and funded them, and they were an anti-communist army against the standing um, government in in Nicaragua, in El Salvador. Like this, I mean, it was it's crazy what the CIA did. They, yeah. they it's a proxy war. It's the United States having a war that they're that they don't have their own troops. Um, performing in and so the cia and i mean the white house just kind of in general is secretly funding this army against i mean it would literally be like russia funding an army of american people to kill american government i mean like that's 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 what it is so and that's what the cia is doing so um, so they are going to use these proceeds from this sale to fund, um, continue to fund the Contras in Nicaragua, um, which they get caught doing. But this is not the only thing they've been doing during this entire, during this, during this whole scandal. That's mm-hmm. it's not just this one. It's not just one gun deal. It's many, many gun deals. In fact, it's guns for drugs across the board. So, um, so they're so they're they're fighting the Sandinistas is who they're is who they're fighting, and there's all of the you know you can listen to Ronald Reagan come out and he's really behind the Contras, which is the CIA founded and funded army, um, and he keeps calling them the Freedom Fighters. And uh, anyone who's really high level and talking to America about what's happening, they are always talking about these Freedom Fighters and how important the Freedom Fighters are, you know, and like. It's it's really some deep deep mind games that are at that are at work here in 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 maintaining this proxy war, but the U.S. Congress had cut off funding to at, at, prior to prior to the Iran Contras had cut off the funding, and so the White House and the CIA were finding these other ways to pay for it. So another way that they were also paying for the Contras was by flying in drugs they were trading mm. um they were trading weapons for drugs and so in nicaragua and so p- 
piles and piles and piles and piles and piles of drugs for piles and piles and piles and piles of weapons. So all of these, all of these things, all of these trades are happening actually on American soil. That's another interesting, that's another interesting thing about just the audacity of, of the Iran, of the Iran Contras in its full, in its full spectrum, everything that they did. So one of the places that they were um, doing this trading, let's see, wait, I want to read something on, because everything's billed as anti-communism. You and I have talked about that before, and we will talk about it some more. But everything's, everything's billed as, like, as this anti-communism, and you have to stop these communists because these communists are so terrible, when oftentimes what's being funded by agencies like the CIA is that governments that the people of 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 not just not just Nicaraguan people wanted, but people all over the world often the governments that they prefer to have in to have in office are being fought against in these in these proxy wars. This is not the only proxy war the United States has conducted. All right, so the U.S. is trading weapons for drugs in and out. So it's it's weapons out, drugs in. So where are they doing this? How are they doing this? This what you know. This is this is a huge. This is a huge, huge story. CIA drug dealing is. I mean, it's pretty known at this time, and a lot of people have gone down in 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 very serious ways around the world because of the CIA's drug dealing. But one of the things, one of the ways that they continue to fund the Contras, is that they are literally selling drugs in the in the United States. Like they're processing and distributing crack cocaine mm-hmm. into very specific areas in the United States. Meanwhile, you have several administrations uh, of the White House who have done enormous work in the propaganda against drug users, in the propping up, you know, coming to the drug war. The Reagan White House, of course, being the real pinnacle. Yeah, so it's the- just so interesting thinking about, like, the U.S. funding, like, both sides of... Uh, of a conflict in Saudi Arabia and then also like literally doing the same thing here. Like they're pushing drugs into like, you know, they're pushing crack cocaine into specifically black communities to try and perpetuate like the anti-black narrative of the country. But then they're also like fueling the other side of the war against it. And it's just like constant chaos, like no peace anywhere for anybody. It's, it's the truth. And I and they're using profits from street drugs to fund contras in Nicaragua, you yeah. know, right? Um, the CIA's army, and they're also setting up all of these laws that allow, first of all, po- property to be confiscated. You know, with the with drug laws, like like property confis like you'll get all your property confiscated and then you can be acquitted but you don't get your property back. So like those laws are all being installed mm-hmm. in the in the Reagan White House and setting up what what the Clinton White House is really going to do the hole in one on which is which is really setting up these crime bills that would make then these billionaire industrialists very wealthy off of the uh, prison industrial complex. So all of that is is taking shape in this in this bullshit that's coming out of the Reagan White House. And Reagan's really he's savvy to, to this stuff, you know. 
or else Poppy's just really taking over. I mean, by the end of Reagan's term, supposedly, you know, he had Alzheimer's and people were, people often say, I mean, I don't doubt necessarily that he had Alzheimer's, but... But he may have also been like, you know what? I'm just going to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this shit's like, I don't want to talk about this stuff anymore. I could still totally see Ronald Reagan being like, you know what? This is, I'm in over my head at this point. I'm just going to go be quiet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but there had been speculation at the time that really, you know, it was Nancy running it. And, you know, everything's a, everything's a, uh, a distraction from what's really happening is, is, Poppy's running it. He's been running it the whole time. The CIA has been running that White House, you know, the whole time. But we're, of course, just towards this, oh, that, you know, Nancy and the psychic, and they were really running the White House. You know, it's just like, that's super cute. I mean, and that stuff, like, worked. I mean, the public kind of, like, was like, oh, that must be true. You know, that bitch Nancy, she's running things. And, like, you know, like, right, that really, and mm-hmm. that psychic, that crazy psychic, all of that, like, it suited our misogyny. It suited our narrative when we, especially since we didn't even have this narrative about about the CIA at the time, so all of that's pretty interesting stuff coming, you know, that's happening there at the end of the Reagan term. But um, one of the things that's happening then during Contras is this: that's also kind of draws in draws in the Clinton aspect. Since that, you just can't help but stitching but stitching these families together, and their policies are all are all made to fit together, right? And you just, there's no way to get around that. So what's happening at this point in time also is Bill Clinton is governor of Arkansas, and that's where the planes are flying into. They're flying into uh, Menla, I think, Menla, Arkansas. Mm. And I'm going to read it a little bit here. Um and so, you know, and, and basically what McGowan says about this, and, and maybe Russ Baker got into it also, but what McGowan says about it, he's like, you know, you're just not flying in these planes with piles and piles of guns and piles and piles of cocaine into, you know, somewhere and just, like, without the governor's, like, approval of this. You know, that's kind of, that's the way that he sees it. So it says, um, it seems that the good governor, this is McGowan, it seems that the good governor was considerate enough to allow his state to be used as a base for George and Ollie's illegal Contra operations. From an airfield in Mena, Arkansas, weapons were flown out of the country and drugs were flown back in. And so, and where McGowan's going with this is he's saying, you know, this isn't going to come without, a, you know, some some goodies for Bill Clinton. And so, for one of those things would probably be money, probably cash kickbacks, which all of this is cash. I think that's the other thing that kind of blows my mind when I really lie down and think about the kind of space you would need to run an operation like this. And it's like, not only do you need space to store and trade enormous amounts of guns and drugs and a place to put your airplanes and so on and so forth but just the money like you have to have physical storage places to store all of this money and you have to have staffs of people to take care of just the cash it's it's staggering. It's mind blowing when you when you think about it for a minute. So so McGowan kind of you know he says too. He's like you know so there's probably going to be some cash, and you know it's pretty lucky 
that Hillary Clinton and Vince Foster also both, you know, work for the Rose Law Firm there. And, and according to McGowan, we're probably pretty good at laundering this type of, of money. So that just to kind of stitch in that bill, that bill, <laughs> that bill Clinton aspect of it. Cause I think, you know, you'd mentioned that before in our last, yeah, our last time, you know, like, but where does Bill Clinton come in? The, you know, maybe that is part of where he comes in. Oh, it, um, it certainly would seem like it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not, you know, and I mean, it's something else that this is another quote from, Dave McGowan kind of on the subject of like Clinton and like what he really did in office. He said, you know, once in office, Clinton balked on the gays in the military issue and on national health care and instead passed an anti-crime bill that liberated the use of the death penalty and gave the states money to hire 100,000 additional police officers. The use of the death penalty and incarceration rates soon began to skyrocket. You know, which later W, you know, he comes in under those new death penalty terms. And, like, I mean, W's death penalty record is really staggering. Like, W really, W really executes a lot of people. But it's made yeah. possible by what, um, by what Bill Clinton does with his, with his crime bill. So, according to, um, to the way McGowan sees it, this action in Arkansas with the planes and the drugs. He's saying that he sees Clinton in on that and that this essentially kind of buys Clinton's way in with with the Bush family. According to the way that McGowan and Russ Baker also really look at the Bush family, you're just talking about a family of people who had a lot more power than some of the other people that you would consider to have power. A lot more power than Reagan, more than Clinton, more than Nixon. Um, probably a similarly uh, equalized power with Kennedy, which might be why we don't have Kennedy anymore, right? Um, or why we lost Kennedy. So, um, so yeah, power brokers for sure. All right, so that's that's very much of a nutshell of the Iron Contras. Uh, really, really ugly business. Really, really dark dark business that's going on there. So we get into this thing too. another one of the, the scandals that happened during the, the Reagan white house. That's important is, um, cause there were so many, I guess they're all technically important, but there were so <laughs> many. Um, so it's BCCI, which is bank of credit and commerce international. So this bank was established in 1972 by a Pakistani financier and it was registered in Luxembourg. By the early 1980s, it was the seventh largest private bank in the world. So having a private bank, it, it really means that these that there isn't regulation or oversight right. on the accounts mm-hmm. that go that go through it. So BCCI, it's the seventh largest private bank in the world. And um, it was largely unregulated because they were operating extensively in areas that didn't regulate banks. Switzerland is known for that. There's plenty of places offshore where banks are not regulated. So that's what BCI, BCCI is one of those. So, and it, it becomes revealed that um, BCCI is money is laundering money for figures such as Saddam Hussein, 
Manuel mm. Noriega. Those are just some names that people, a lot of people know. We know Noriega was um, a, running a drug cartel. Uh, Saddam Hussein did all sorts of rather amazing. Saddam Hussein actually has one of the most interesting life histories. Um, but Saddam Hussein was up to no good with a lot of, with a, with a good deal of things. Um, so in general, BCCI is laundering money for arms and drugs. Like all, you know, like all these crime, it's hot money is what they call it. This is hot money. Um, and BCCI was also laundering for the Contras. So aside from laundering all over the world, they were also um, laundering for, for the Contras. And they were, most of their investors were uh, lots of Middle Eastern investors, but they were actually... Um, they actually did a lot of business in the United States, even though most of their accounts were offshore and most of their accounts were handled by foreign investors. So this was just another scandal but that the Reagan-Bush White House got caught up in, especially since they kind of had their fingers in the pot, right? Because BCCI was laundering money for uh, the Iran-Contras, which was directly connected to the White House. All of this. All of this happens in good old uh, in the good old Bush Reagan White House. Wow. So I know, and so this is going to be the last uh, scandal that I talk about today. Um, but it's one of the best, and I hope you didn't forget <laughs> the name uh, Khalid Mahfouz. No, I did not. Who, yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so Promise. This is the Promise software scandal, or maybe it's called Promise. Maybe it's maybe it's pronounced Promise, but it's an acronym. Promise is an acronym. The PRO stands for prosecutors, right? And then you have MIS, Management Information System. So it's the Prosecutors Management Information System, and it's Promise Software. And so it was developed um, with help from Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, and it was initially created to help prosecuting attorneys, prosecutors, manage their cases so you know we're back in the 1980s right so this type of case management software if you can imagine like the moment when that was taking over like in the 1980s when you were going from having a room full of paper files and somebody being like actually now you can call up all your files according to like one piece of data and you can get every file in this room that includes that piece of data. I mean, this these were amazing times, right? When this yeah. type of software was being developed. And so, of course, this, you know, that any... I mean, this is true of, of everything, including bureaucracies and su and subdivisions. But, but you know, any of these things, these uh, software that we get on the computers, of course, is being developed by what military and securities. So, of course... Case management files of all kinds, technically, um, software technically goes back to how it was done so that prosecutors could basically manage, you know, um, guilty clients. So, um, anyway, which I just kind of find sort of well, interesting. Yeah. But, <laughs> right. But the, the software itself was being, now it was just really a case management um, system and it could be sold to other to other businesses like banks, for example. 
So uh, the software was being, and I'm getting all of this information from three places, from um, from Wikipedia, from a, an article by Ryan Gallagher in the New Statesman in 2011, and there was a there was in 2008 KESQ News Three in Palm Springs did actually a really excellent like year long investigative report on this like like their their work on that was really really good. Um, so I'm using their information on this also. So this was, all right. So this system already exists. It's been made by a company named Inslaw, but in the Reagan white house, there is, there is an intelligence initiative that's actually titled. I love the titles of intelligence initiatives. Sometimes (laughs) I love them. And this one is titled follow the money. Oh, so yeah. Right. So this is and this is this isn't even CIA. This is just your basic Reagan intelligence initiative in the White House. And it's called Follow the Money. And so what they do is they take this Promise software, Promise Promise software, and they they incorporate a back door into it. And so they and this happens. These people are so slimy. This happens on the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians Reservation. Oh, so they Jesus. have Right, so they have the modifications done, the back door added to the Promise software. They have that done on an on an Indian reservation, so it's not um, American soil. It's wow. all completely those yeah. fucking dick pieces of shit. Totally, fuck. They them. know this stuff. They fucking know this assholes. Stuff. Fucking assholes. Right. So it's totally there. So they add this back door. And it's being added, actually, by the National Security Agency. So it's oh, being that, added by the NSA. Wow, NSA. Yeah. Right. Under funded by the Follow the Money initiative out of the White House. Okay? Oh, so it's... Right. So these modifications are done. They're done on the sovereign tribal land in, in Indio, California. So there's, um, there's no federal oversight on what they're doing to the software. And what they're doing, and this is their word, they're making the software espionage enabled. And those are their words. And so what Wait, it's doing what? is it's, What does that mean? Espionage mean, enabled? Espionage enabled um, means that a back door has been added so that the NSA can look at what you're doing. <laughs> And so, <laughs> Jesus Christ. That's, that's all that means. Espionage <laughs> on. Yeah. <laughs> right. Go to your settings. Yes. Scroll down. Yeah, you want to enable espionage um, just to make sure that we can uh, just get on in there whenever we need to. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so they do this. The United States government does this. And according to Gallagher, there's a letter um, from the Department of Justice that comes out in 1985, and it outlines how sales would be facilitated um, by by agents in, of course, the Middle East, you know, which is a big place. That's many countries, but middle the Middle East and also Nicaragua, mm-hmm. and. These sales would be facilitated without paperwork, customs, or delay, right? So then this is coming this is coming from a letter from the Justice Department saying that this is how the sales on this promise will be handled by these secret agents, essentially. And one of those agents is 
Khalid bin Mahfouz. Oh. The banker of the Saudi royal family. And, and so he, the employer of Jim Bass. Correct. Right. Cool. Cool, right? Um, so, uh, so anyway, the, um, the white, the Reagan White House manufactures these and goes on to, uh, to have them distributed to various bankers and industrialists via their own, like, agents, their own rich agents. So, uh, that's, that's where we're at with, um... With the with the uh, with Bush's clandestine operations during his during his tenure in the White House, but does this go through his presidency or just through the his vice presidency? All of this that we talked about today went through through the Reagan Bush through the vice presidency. So we haven't even gotten into his actual (laughs) presidency yet. (laughs) Right? No, I know. Right? So we'll talk. We'll talk about what happens um, with his presidency, what he sets up during his presidency, as we essentially look at that as the lens of him setting up. W. I mean, this is really wild because I I guess I'm not surprised that I feel like there's so much information regarding the Bushes that just like relates to basically the rapid, uh, you know, fucking up of everything uh, in a mm-hmm. in a in a new and innovative way. You know, because everything's always been fucked up, but it's like a very innovative fucking up worldwide fuck up yeah because we had talked basically like from even just our COINTELPRO episode like the very beginning which is like you know turn of the ninth the 20th century like 1900s or whatever where it's like this is this like generational plan like laid out five generations ahead of time or whatever and it's really getting into I guess Poppy is like number three because it was like his grandpa that was the one, right? Am I right or mm-hmm. am I mixing it up? Uh, yeah, he's. I mean, Samuel. There was Samuel Bush, and then there was Prescott, and then right, right, Poppy, right. So Samuel is the yeah. one. So it's like this is third generation, and like the wheels are really mm-hmm. starting to turn. Mm-hmm. But it's stuff that they had been mm-hmm. planning for like two generations before it already, and it's just like yes, it's just wild, and it it is really uh integrated with you know the like knowing the clintons are involved just from letting these planes land in arkansas which i feel like is just a logical conclusion like i'm not sure if that's something that is like proven on the books but like what like that just is like conveniently the right place at the right time Mm -hmm. i guess i don't know and Mm -hmm. yeah i'm interested to see how the rest of stuff goes. I mean, it just kind of seems like the plan obviously shows no allegiance to America, whatever the fuck America is, but it's just their allegiance to these like secret clubs. And I don't want it to be like weird QAnon stuff where it's like, cause it's just like, not that to me, like skull and bones and like the Bohemian Grove people are like, 
real clubs that are documented and they're all like very wealthy people. And it's just like very clear that the end goal is like these white Christian men amassing all of this wealth just... I don't know. I mean, I don't know what their secret clubs are up to. I guess I, I just don't want it to right. seem like like QAnon-y. Obviously, that's like my worst fear for like anything <laughs> that we're talking <laughs> about to be conflated with that in any way. But it's really just like, it just sucks. It's like, you know, everything, everything, every question, it's like two sides of like the same coin. But like these clubs are like very real and it just seems pretty mm-hmm. obvious like that their allegiance is to these clubs and whatever yeah. whatever Bohemian Grove was doing it basically just seems like they're you know like rich guys doing like a burning man type thing in the woods mm-hmm. once a decade mm-hmm. or something but it's just like the wealth of mass and I feel like secrecy is just like exciting like if anything, mm-hmm. like a goal, like a reason they would do it is because like secrets are like very exciting and powerful mm-hmm. and like enticing and like you can get a lot more done if nobody knows what you're actually up to and you don't have to answer anybody's questions and you're like mm-hmm. doing everything in your own rules and your own timeline. It yeah, fuck yeah. the bushes. I absolutely. I mean, you know, if I mean, if nothing else, it's just. These cartels, these drugs and guns cartels, these gangs, these mafias, there's nothing really queuing on about any of that. <laughs> like, that's pretty, like, that's pretty, like, standard American um, reality is right. that our powerful people are not only, like, corporate industrialists, but corporate industrialists are basically drug dealers Mm -hmm. i I mean they're basically cartels and uh, you know and it's just like that's that's when it's it's dark it's really very um it's it's what's the word that i'm looking for it's just it's dark when you get down to it there's nothing about this that isn't just just really dark and sad. Yeah, because like, it's like these horrible really people. Yeah, and they, they're disregarding human life. They're murdering mm-hmm. people. They're ruining entire communities. Like, you know, obvi- mm-hmm. like they're just like r- pushing away any type of person that isn't like a white Christian man. You know, like anybody that isn't a white Christian man is fucked with at some at some level obviously some much more fucked with than others but ultimately it's just like these white christian men and also white christian men that act a certain way because you don't want to be like a white christian man with your little commune in texas storing your guns because that's not going to go over well either but right yeah it's it's just uh obviously i think you know what we've been trying to show is that like (laughs) America sucks and is founded on lies and like all these people that are quote unquote leaders and the government, all these agencies, it's just like literally founded on lies, dishonesty, secrecy, capitalism, exploitation, white supremacy, and you know, just making money because I don't know. 
that's what they think is important. It's so insane to me. It's like you need to go outside and touch the grass, not on a golf course. Like, go to the woods, hug a tree, and, like, get over it. Like, it's, I don't know. All these people are super (laughs) evil. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad news. And I think that it just, for me, it really comes down to this, like, understanding that the American government is really made up of industrialists, of capitalists. That's who's really controlling the American government. And what they... I mean, that's... I mean, not even controlling it. That's who's in there. That's who they are. That's what it is. And 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 that their real jobs are basically being gangs. Their job is being leaders and workers within these really dark cartel industries. And um, and I think that that's... To me, that's, that's really... That's the bottom line. And it requires things like the CIA. Uh, it requires things like Blackwater. So, you know, they have... They yeah. have intelligence that belongs just to them. They have military that belongs and mercenaries, just to them. right? Exactly. Yes, yes, and uh, yeah. It's some. It's just. It's very. It's very dark shit. And for sure, the Bush family is a is a is a big player in in all of that. I mean, what's going on in in their mind? I mean, you know, something else I forgot to mention in this one too is is when Reagan and Bush took over the White House from Jimmy Carter. Like, you know, they got the hostages came home and they basically went up to the roof and ripped down the um, solar panels on the White House. Jimmy Carter put up solar panels on the White House and um, Reagan and Bush had to get in there and rip them down because this is an oil country. Damn it. This is America. Damn it. Fucking you know, so losers. Like, I mean, it was it was just ridiculous. Why not just leave it up there? You know, I mean, it just it didn't make any I mean, like the only reason to rip down the solar panels was to make a statement about business. That's and I think so that, stupid. Right? That's like taking. You, tr- that's like cutting down trees. It's it was ignorant. And we're a lawn that, family. We only want lawn. We don't want any trees. <laughs> right. Well, they're like we're in oil. This is an yes, oil country. I see. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I feel that. And we're an oil empire because they're getting... Yes. I mean, I, I we haven't even really yes. gotten into the oil aspect of the dealings with the Saudis and stuff, you no, know? No, we haven't. No, we haven't. But I'm, got, I'm, reading, um, I'm reading House of Bush, House of Sod by Craig Unger. So that's... And that just it leaves me at this point in time. It leaves me with more questions than answers. But it's actually really yeah. good, and we will uh, we'll, we'll talk we'll talk about it with um, when we talk about W getting um, you know how do you I don't know how seated into the White House. I mean you know um, yeah we'll, we'll we have so much that. more to go. I mean we're still fifteen years away from even talking about nine eleven. We have to get through the whole nineties. <laughs> in the 90s were fucking crazy the 90s the 90s were fucking crazy the 90s were insane we've no, said this every, before uh, yeah i know every decade we're like and then this time period was fucking crazy yeah <laughs> but the 90s you know it's really it's since it's since the dawn of this quote-unquote country it's it's really a bad one mm-hmm. yeah the 90s bad country well. f i give it an f <laughs> no doubt cool well thanks for doing all this research it's super interesting and 
I'm learning a lot, and I really appreciate you. Yeah, well, thank you. Me too. You're welcome. Um, okay, <laughs> well, I guess until next time. Oh, right. We should say you can find us on Twitter, at Secret Antenna, and on Instagram, at Secret Antenna, which I would assume people would already follow us on one of those if they are seeing this podcast at all, but just in case you don't. Oh, and you can email us, secretantenna at protonmail.com. Oh.